When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From pitch side to print to the press box above Providence Park. It's Jamie Goldberg from the Oregonian and Richard Farley from the Portland Timbers and Thorns. This is Soccer Made in Portland. On the scene, all the time. Welcome everyone to Soccer Made in Portland. Uh, it's a very Portland day out here at the Timbers training facility. I don't know. Uh, it feels like October came a little bit too quickly for me. Really? But I guess from the soccer side, that's good because it's now getting a lot more exciting to talk about from the Timbers perspective. I guess. Yeah, I guess I hadn't thought about it before. It's weird when you're talking about something on a podcast and you instantly have to have a very firm opinion. <laughs> and I hadn't really considered whether after this Saturday it's more or less exciting because, frankly, I thought the struggles that the Timbers were going through before were exciting just from a more negative perspective. Yeah, I, I just think now that we're, you know, you get to October in the MLS season and it really becomes about the playoff race and what form the team that you're covering's in and what form other teams in. There's a level of excitement in October and then going to playoffs that I think is a little bit different. I will say this. I am glad that the fans have something to be excited about after (laughs) this weekend. It makes my life better because when the team loses, and you experience this too on your timeline, people want you to talk about the things that they think are going wrong. And if you're not talking about those things, then what are you doing? This team clearly needs to do X, Y, Z. And you're just kind of doing the Twitter shruggy. It's like, I don't know. There's only so many things I can talk about. (laughs) But now after wins, everybody's just like, yeah. Well, maybe not everybody's like, yeah, right now, because they need to figure out what happened on Saturday because the result was way more one-sided than I think you, either you or I thought it was going to be. Oh, yeah. Um, from our points perspective, in terms of what we're going to be getting. Yeah, can we just skip the points? <laughs> yeah, um, well, I think... As I'm handing out points, I think it's going to be zeros all around. Right. But, uh, yeah, I predicted a 2-0 loss. You predicted the final score would be within one goal, and the Timbers went to Salt Lake and shocked everyone by getting a 4-1 win. But you had to deal with texts from me on this Tuesday night, so I want to apologize to our podcast listeners because people who had to read my content or hear my content later in the week figured out that I actually broke down RSL on Tuesday night and I texted you just kind of like, oh, God. Basically, when I watched RSL and broke them down, I just like, this team is not good. And I'm almost going to be disappointed if the Timbers don't get a win in Salt Lake. I didn't think it was going to be 4-1. But after watching RSL's performance against Kansas City last Sunday, even though they got a point from that, I went away from that game going, oof, this team's really not good. And if Portland can't beat this team even in Salt Lake, I'm going to have major questions about them. I think the major questions got major responses. Yeah, uh, I, I mean, we're going to see what, with the Timbers having another game against Salt Lake in, in two weeks, uh, whether or not they can keep up this form. But I think there's a lot of optimism coming out of this game. I, I think the biggest talking point probably, although there's a number of talking points, a lot of, that we're going to be able to hit um, in our discussion. But I think one of the biggest things is the return of the 4-2-3-1, the staple of the Caleb Porter 
Porter era and what we really haven't seen since the beginning of the season when the Timbers were struggling for the most part. We got a glimpse of it on June 6th in open cup play, but half of that team was T2 players. And that's the system that T2 has been playing most this year. So I don't really know that we can count that. And I think this is a great moment for people who've been calling for months to go back to the 4-2-3-1 formation. They clearly saw something that has played out over the last 90 minutes of play. And I think most of the reasons that they were listing as to why the team should uh, go into this, the fact that you have Davi Guzman and Diego, Diego Chara playing off each other's strengths in the double pivot, the fact that you get Andy Polo back to his best position, that you get Diego Valerian to a pure isolated 10, to a different extent, I mean... I guess I should say I don't think any of those were negatives this week, and I think some of them could get more positive in the future. But those people who have been calling for that formation change, this is your day. This is your week. You get it. You got it. <laughs> yeah, I, I think you hit on some of the points of why it was so effective in this game. I, I think um, it obviously caught Salt Lake by surprise. Um, that was clear from the comments after the game. So that's always, I, I think, a benefit when you effectively employ for animation and it's not what the team you're playing is expecting. But going back to the, obviously, Guzman, I mean, formation is part of it but he had his best game of the season that was important this um chara was able to play still sort of like an eight and but as we were talking about last week a little bit more centrally which is what i sort of was calling for even if he's playing more in that role he needs to be in a formation that keeps him more centrally i think that was um something good to see like you said getting them more with 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 polo playing in i think what's more of his natural position what he came in um, to sort of be a winger here. Blanco was able to play more as an uh, inverted winger and, and have a little bit more freedom. And, and obviously he's been a guy that I think has been able to deal with being the changes better than anyone else this season, just the ability to move into whatever place he needs to be on the field and, and still be effective. And then Valeria, I mean, I think we've talked a little bit, maybe we should talk even more about it, how, you know, that Valeria hasn't been as good as we want him to be at sometimes this season. Yeah, um, I thought it was interesting that Pecky pecked him out. Yeah. I mean, Blanco was clearly the game's best player. I thought Guzman and Chara, the relationship we saw there was great. Bobasi continues to do so many things without the ball that it's forcing us to take notice of those things. I thought Valeri was kind of 2018 Valeri in this game, which isn't a bad player, but it's also the kind of player that makes you wonder, okay, taking Blanco out of the middle of the park, is that going to be effective? For 90 minutes it was, but I didn't think Valeri was so... Mike Pecky has to talk about this awesome. Yeah. I, I mean, what I think is that Valeri sort of grew into the game. I think you look at the beginning of the game and there were some turnovers, some poor passes from him, and as it went on, he w- did start finding those spaces. And I, I think you look at um, Blanco's... I'm trying to remember if it's his first or second goal, but the one that I, I believe Valeri S- finds a Bobasi and then Bobasi finds Valeri and yeah, Valeri finds Blanco. I, th- I think that was kind of an example of what Pecky was sort of pointing to where he was finding those uh, open spaces um, from that pl- playmaking position. Yeah. So I think it I think it did bring out the best in Valeri, although I, I think it was more him growing into the game and towards the end being more effective, not necessarily... I mean, Blanco was the star of this game. It's hard to... Uh, there's def- different, definitely... You can talk about Guzman, you can talk about Char, you can talk about Vobasi, and you can talk about Polo and the role he played there. And there's a lot of, within the formation, a lot of good things to take away from it. But yeah, it, it's, hard, it's interesting to single off Larry over Blanco because he <laughs> kind of put the game on his shoulders and uh, made sure the Timbers walked away with three points. If we keep talking about the first and third goals, I'm going to explode on this podcast because when those goals happen, Happened. I got so angry at myself and wanted to apologize to listeners of the show because those are the things that when you watch 
the previous RSL game, they jump out at you. On that third goal, their ability to use that space in front of the defense because neither of Salt Lake's midfielders are able to cover that space, playing that ball from right to left and eventually flying Blanco. The ability to get behind a fullback and get into that channel um, beside Justin Glad on the first goal for Blanco to play that apart. Again, it's something on tape that you could pick out the week before. So I don't know how many times I'm going to do this, but I promise people who listen to this podcast that I will actually do my film review before we record in the future because it was just night and day after watching that. Before, remember last week, I'm like, boy, I really think maybe they should go back to the 5-3-2. Afterwards, I was like, they got to play wingers. Those fullbacks are vulnerable. They got to get into those channels. It was just, it was ridiculous last week how I just like turned on a dime after watching the game. I think though with the form they were in, even against, and obviously, um, Obviously, Savarese read the opponent and, and, you know, recognized that this formation was going to work. But I think with just the form the Timbers were in heading to this game, it felt like no matter what, who you're playing, they just need to be defensive. They need to just find a way to not, uh, you know, just give away goals on the road. And so, I mean, I think I was going to that game still feeling a similar way, but... It, that does it, make me feel it worked a little better. Out. I mean, sometimes, you, sometimes I think you want to focus a ton on the opponent and... and Definitely, that, that's something that Savarese does seem to prioritize and something that's important. But sometimes when a team is in certain kind of form, it's just a matter of what can this team do to just play better. I think it also goes back to something Gio has said throughout this year, that we never go on the road only for one point. And you look at the New England game, and you're like, okay, well, I could see how maybe you thought you could win it, but this was obviously a pretty <laughs> conservative approach. If there was a time to be conservative, particularly giving the benefits to holding Real Salt Lake without all three points as it concerned the playoff race, this seems like it could have been it. And instead, they went with a very proactive rep- approach that tried to take advantage of RSL's weaknesses. And I think we learned something about Giovanni Savarese that even when so many things told him about the benefits to being conservative on Saturday, he still went with what he felt was overall the team's best approach. And that's something for us to file away as we're trying to predict how he'll line up teams in the future. So I want to know from your opinion, I mean, do you think that this is a formation now we're going to see the Timbers continue to use? And why do you think that he waited till this point to Gio waited till this point to bring it back? Oh, I don't know where to start on that one. Do I, okay, do I think it's a formation they will continue to use? You have to. You, four to one victory on the road against a playoff rival, you have to at least file that away. But I don't think this is going to be the exclusive formation that he'll use because I think there are going to be some times that he'll want to go with two forwards. So we'll see the diamond midfield again. I do wonder if we're going to see the four three two one anymore because I'm, I just don't know where that fits. But the four three two one, the four three two one. I wonder if we're going to see that anymore. But at the same time. Two minutes ago, we're talking about not being able to predict Giovanni Savarese. I'm not going to be totally shocked if we see the 5-3-2 come back again. And I think if there's one thing to take from this weekend, if I'm an opposing coach, this team now has three or four different formations it can play, has played for long periods of time this year. So while I think the 4-2-3-1 is definitely a card that he has in his hand at this point, I don't really want to sit here and pretend like I know what he's going to do going for it. I think you probably feel the same way. You don't want to sit here and try to predict what Giovanni Savarese is going to do. But in your gut, what would you do? How would you take the performance that they had against RSL this weekend and let that influence your decisions going forward? 
Yeah, I, I mean, it's the, it is the formation that he started the season with, and it was the formation that this team has, has been so effective in in previous years. Obviously, there's different personnel this year. And they moved away from it so quickly because the, the results were so poor. And so Avresi said, you know, he's been trying to build the team back up to a point where they can maybe use this formation again. Um, and there has he, he pointed to the NYCFC game, which was on paper a 4-4-1-1, said there was a lot of similarities in his opinion, at least mm-hmm. how he was approaching it to what it looks like That's when a really you lay good way out a four two three one. Yeah, rather than trying to like say whether it was a four two three one or not, just say how he was approaching it was similar to yeah. You know why that's a good way to put it? Because it's exactly what Giovanni Savarese said. <laughs> I don't know why I forgot about that. Yeah, so I I, I mean it took a while to get back to this formation. I think they should I mean, they're going to play Salt Lake again, so it's a matter of, well, this formation was really effective against Salt Lake. Should we stick with it? Should we see if we continue to build off that? Or should we try to throw them off a little bit because they might be expecting this? And I I think that's something that Savaresi balances every week a little Mm -hmm. bit more than maybe we're used to seeing when it comes to just formations in particular. He's a guy that really seems to be paying attention to the opponent um, every single week and not necessarily saying that we have to be conservative because we just need a point here. It's just what can we do to exploit this specific opponent in this specific game and and throw in some wrinkles so they are caught off guard. And so because of that, it's hard for me to predict if they're going to use this every game, even if they're going to use the exact same formation against RSL again or make some tweaks to it. Um, And and whether there will even going into playoffs, whether Zavrosi really wants to get to that point where there is a consistent formation. Consistent ideals, yes. Yeah. As he continues to say, they want to be compact. They want to be disciplined defensively. Um, they are a counterattacking team, um, and they can use that effectively. But I'm not sure if even even though I think everyone right now is yes, let's keep seeing this four two three one. I'm not sure if that's something that we're just going to see from Zavrosi. And for some of the reasons you just said, maybe it's not even something that would be good for the team if they just stuck to one formation the whole time. And I would say on the first and third goals, the attacking principles that we saw, I mean, those goals were very similar to other goals we've seen this year, particularly the first goal. The first goal, I don't know how many times Sebastian Blanco has played that ball and whether it resulted in a goal or not. Obviously, Jeremy Abobasi's other MLS goal this year was off a very similar play. But the way the team is going to approach his basic assignments isn't going to change based on the formation. But the second question that you asked, why haven't we seen the Timbers go back to this formation until now? Um, Just to plug my own content, I kind of wrote about it on Monday. And I think, just go down the list. Diego Valeri, is he somebody that the team can stick as a number 10 the way they were playing before and just say, we are going to have enough attacking power. If we just stick with one number 10, we can afford to push Sebastian Blanco wide. I can see people falling on both sides of that question, but I think it's a legitimate question. Uh, Leveraging Jorge Villafaña's ability to provide the width on the left if Sebastian Blanco comes in. Obviously, for most of the year, they couldn't do that. Having an all-around forward like Jeremy Abobasi up there, they lost that when they traded away Fernando Adi. Samuel Armenteros is somebody that definitely could play at the top of a 4-2-3-1. He has for most of the year, but I think we'll probably end up talking about this over the next month. There's a lot of things that Jeremy Abobasi brings that Samuel Armenteros doesn't bring, good and bad. Uh, David Guzman. David Guzman has not been good for most of this year. He's he's given the effort, but we saw against Minnesota, when you play him alone as a six, he gets out of position. And I think beyond just giving him the safety net of Diego Chara, he needed to play better in order to solidify his place in the first 11. And maybe Saturday was a big step towards that. And then there's the actual defending shape. We've seen for most of this year, when they're in the defensive set, they're, they're in a pyramid. They're in a Christmas tree. And when you go to a 4-2-3-1, you're defending in banks of four again. So it's 
based on on principles alone, it's different. I think that's the biggest change more than anything that's come out of this weekend. But I do think that there are a lot of little reasons why the team couldn't go back to the 4-2-3-1 earlier. Mostly coming off those first two games, they needed to protect the defense until the defense was strong enough to go back to this formation. Well, I think we have, you mentioned some of the players coming out of this game specifically, and I definitely want to touch on some of the performances. But one other point coming out of the game I think we should hit on it is just the non-red cards oh my gosh three potential uh all could have been red cards three three oh what what am i because i know about beckerman i know about Ramondo. what am i forget oh chara well no i mean i was thinking both of beckerman's could have been red cards and then Ramondo. i'm missing the first i'm forgetting yeah i definitely remember pulled guzman down by the head then pulled valeri down by the head and got a yellow card and oh i guess i wasn't really counting that one as because chara did the same thing the previous week so i mean maybe not all of them could have been red cards but i think when grouped together at least i mean at least it should have been a second yellow card because there should have been a yellow card on the first one play at Mm. bare minimum yeah, I feel like the first one was either a non-call or a red, but like you're saying, it deserves something because to me, he throws an elbow and when it doesn't land enough with enough force, he just pulls Chara down after that and the mere throwing of the elbow alone. Guzman down? Guzman, yeah. yeah that's, they're very two very different people. <laughs> different altitudes for your elbow on those. That and then the Ramondo one, why do we even have VAR if those things aren't going to be picked out by VAR? It's ridiculous. But what, what was your reaction to those? Yeah, I, I thought that I, I I think that, you know, again, the, he pulls Guzman down and it's, there's not a ton of force behind it. But I think that we've grown accustomed and it's been sort of the the expectation that when it's hand to head contact, if someone's actually hitting someone in the head, we've seen much less get called red in this league. And if, if that's going to be the standard that if a player is making contact with someone's head absolutely if they're pulling someone down by the head that, that that's should not be even the worst part about it to me the fact that he threw the elbow to begin with he didn't make enough contact yeah. for guzman to go down based on that you throw an elbow at somebody above the shoulders whether you landed or not you need to be gone and that's usually the i mean that's usually what we've seen and yeah. even accidental i mean we've seen in this league when you're wondering oh my, man that was an accidental elbow well he was just throwing he didn't mean to get that guy in the head and we've seen players get sent off for that and that yeah it's I mean, amazing that that happens with VAR, and we have the ability to look at video replay, and nothing is given to Beckerman in this case. I was, I won't want to say I was nervous, but I was intrigued when they went to VAR based on Chara making contact with, who did he make contact with in the first half when he swung his elbow while he was trying to protect? I can't remember either. I think it was, might have been Rushnak. But either way, you've seen those situations before where somebody is just the mere act of throwing an elbow, even if it's not intentional, the interpretation is you have to have control over your body. If you're putting somebody else in danger like that, where you can like make contact with an elbow to their head, you're, you're going to get a red card for it. So I was a little bit intrigued by the interpretation on that. I thought they got that one right. The Ramondo one I thought was really straightforward. Yeah, the Ramondo one I think was the most obvious for me of, of any of them. I, it was studs up straight legs studs up into somebody and i don't know i think that's a red card like every time except apparently this time but i guess we can't say every i i remember i was watching i was sitting next to my boyfriend immediately said oh he's off and i was like well let's see after the rest of this game and of course he doesn't go off that's my favorite thing Um, on twitter in these situations when people tweet that's a red card every time and the one instance they're talking about is not a red card (laughs) it's like it's a red card 92 percent of the time yeah it's just with var and having the ability to correct these plays i just don't understand 
how in the discussions, in none of these cases, does the referee go over and actually look at the monitor. I'm just amazed that in all of those situations, and I think Beckerman taking down Valeri is is a little bit more of the classic yellow because it's it's stopping sort of a counterattack. But, of course, it is against, again, to the head area. It could have been even, you know, sort of after the first play is... I just don't know how Beckerman stayed in that game, and I don't know how Morando stayed in that game. But veteran savvy is how he stayed in that game. (laughs) He has more veteran savvy than anybody except for Nick Romando at this point. Yeah, so maybe it's just both of them. I um, I hate talking about this stuff, though, because I'm the type of person that when I see referees make mistakes, I kind of just chalk them up to the kind of obstacles that every team should be expected to deal with when you're preparing a team you can't prepare a team and say okay let's go in here assuming the referee is always going to make the right decision but that's what var is supposed to do exactly that's why i get frustrated i don't get frustrated when i don't see the lead official go over to review i'm perfectly fine with the lead official trusting the var official but when mistakes are made or when it looks like they're not using var effectively i kind of blame the whole crew at that point and wonder you guys i'm just saying to myself you guys need to figure out what went wrong because people shouldn't be able to to go straight legs into somebody. People shouldn't be able to throw elbows at other people. And, and that's exactly the thing that you expect VAR to start correcting. You look at like baseball and bringing in video replay, and I think previously the a shortstop or a second baseman's idea of touching second base on double play was let's just get in the vicinity let's just kick up some kick up some dirt right now they know they have to touch the base because teams can challenge and and suddenly that can be overturned similarly you hope that it makes the game a little bit more safe by knowing you have var there and you can't just throw someone to the ground by the head off the ball where the ref might not see it i don't watch baseball that much. I do watch an excessive amount of NBA basketball, and there's never a point in an NBA basketball game where I go, I can't believe they didn't review that. There are points where I say, I can't believe they're spending so much time reviewing this, (laughs) but I never really feel like, especially in instances of violent conduct, I feel like they err on the side of, we have to take the extra minute to make sure this guy didn't throw a punch. In this case... I would have felt better about it, even if the lead referee didn't go to the monitor, if he just stood there with his hand on his ear, his ear for 30 seconds to let me know. I mean, I'm not saying they need to put on a show for me, but I would like some assurance that this was reviewed the way it should have been reviewed. And like you're hinting at, I don't feel like we got any indication from the process that it worked the way it was intended yeah. to. Well, on a uh, Wait, okay, <laughs> that was less the, aggravating that was the, note. The Chris Reifer hot take interview. No. <laughs> we have, we, I think we'll have more of this on the I don't think that was take. a hot take at all. Either, um, so. But uh, you mentioned it, you know, how Jeremy Abobasi, sort of uh, the role he played in this formation and just the, the role he played as that forward, forward and a, a lone forward up top. Um, looking at his numbers, he has two goals and one assist in 354 minutes a season, three goals, four assists in 671 minutes in his MLS career. Not, not a ton of, not a huge sample size, but um, obviously he's done pretty well overall with the minutes he's gotten. And especially uh, for somebody his age, yeah. we, we forget how young he is. I don't, I say we, there are some people out there that definitely remember it, but <laughs> it, it is interesting to remind yourself that this is a person who chronologically is at the edge of what we would call adulthood yeah so i mean given that i mean he's coming in right now he's getting playing time finally after you know the entire year i think there's some questions as to why maybe he didn't 
come in earlier that we have been getting. Yeah, but a couple of annoying reporters today at Timbers practice kept asking about Jeremy Bobasi. <laughs> Goldberg and Farley need to cool it. <laughs> like they were both all over Savarese today. It was it was really embarrassing for them. I thought. I think the interesting thing now is I've sort of assumed that Sammy Armenteros, when he's healthy, he obviously was dealing with a illness and wasn't available this week and is going to start if there is, for the most part, if it's a formation where there's only one for it. But given the slump that Armenteros is in I, and how Bobasi is playing, I, I don't know. Do you think that he's earned a starting spot at this point? I think it's close enough that the week's training should decide it, which I think says a lot for how much Jeremy Obobese has climbed the depth chart this year and also says a lot from where about where Samuel Armenteros has descended from the heights that he had during his goal-scoring streak. You, during your hot take two episodes ago, I think kind of nailed it. This is such an important time for Armenteros that if he can't prove that he is clearly better than Jeremy Obobese, well, perhaps Jeremy Obobese will be playing on an all-star level, <laughs> but it does bring up new questions about the decisions that have to happen this offseason. Regardless, at this point in time, seeing how Jeremy Obobese has played both with Armenteros and without him, it would be unfair to him to go into a week and not give him a chance to earn that starting job. What do you think? Yeah, I, I think that for now, I mean, I would expect that he'll be in the starting lineup against Salt Lake because we've seen Savarese reward players from doing when they've done yeah, well. Yeah, good point. And yeah. I think it would be surprising to see him after that performance just taken off uh, the line, taken out of the lineup uh, entirely. Um, obviously, the formation could change as we talked about. Maybe there's a way that they could get both of them on. But I sort of expect that Bobasi has the chance now to sort of win it. Uh, and if he keeps scoring goals, he'll stay in. If he has an off game, I, I think Armentero's very likely. I, I think that's how quickly you might see the switch, given the pedigree that Armentero sort of has. But this is a competition now. And I'm, it's not at all clear that uh, Armenteros is going to get that spot back if Obobese keeps putting up decent um, numbers and keeps providing, playing like he has been, because I'm just not sure where Armenteros is at this point right now. I mean, we just the slump he's been in, he, he hasn't really been the same player really since, um, I, I don't know if the timing is just random, but really since Audi left is yeah. when that sort of... Uh, that streak that he was on sort well, of ended. No, let me let me give you the question. Let you let you say what you feel. Do you think the timing is random that Samuel Armenteros's goal scoring production has dipped at around the same time that Fernando Adi touched down in Cincinnati? I think that it's hard to tell. I think. This is a very Richard the, Farley the, so answer. The, so it's the, hard to no, tell. No. So the Bean streak ended shortly after that. I think one game afterward. I think that that game happens. They beat Philadelphia, and then the Bean streak ended. So it's not just Armenteros who kind of went into a slump. It seems like almost the entire team yeah, did. They just and regressed I, back to their mean, I think. And I don't think you can really say that the entire team started slumping because Audi was gone. Now, we don't know if there's other mentality aspects where Armenteros didn't feel like he was fighting for his job every day. We, we don't can't really go onto the training field and know for sure if there were some lapses in sort of that mentality side by not having the competition there anymore. Maybe, maybe not. But definitely it came at a time when the team just sort of what stopped playing as well as they had been playing. I, The person that um, covered Fernando Adi from the time that he arrived here until he left wants me to think that Fernando Adi just culturally had that huge effect, but there have been other people that have come in and out of this culture and the team hasn't swooned so much. I do think it, 
it's just a matter of the team returning to their normal level, things evening out a little bit, but it still leaves us in the same place that you alluded to. What's Armin Toast doing now? What's he likely to do in the future? How does that compare to Jeremy Abobasi? Both guys, no matter who starts, is going to be very dependent on somebody that is emerging as the Timbers' most important attacking player, which is something weird to say considering the reigning most valuable player is still on the team. But after these last couple months, is there any doubt, at least at this point in time, that despite Mike Petke's answer this weekend, <laughs> that the most important Timber in attack right now is Sebastian Blanco? No, there's, there's no doubt. I, I mean, just his numbers, when you look at sort of while everyone else is slumping, he's the only one really providing consistent assists more than goals, but also, you know, coming in and having a game like that where he scores two goals. Um, yeah, Blanco's the most important player in the Timbers' attack right now. And I, I think Valeri... As we've said, Valeri's 2018 form is nowhere near 2017 and is, I think, a regression from what we expect, even given that the end of 2017 was a bit of an anomaly from even his um, high level that he's been able to show in MLS. And I I think that raises a lot of questions about as he continues to go older, but... Uh, from Blanco, Blanco I, I think, has gone from being a good player his first year as a Timbers to really, as he settled in, probably settling into Portland. His, I know he talks about how much he and his family enjoy being here. As he settled into that aspect, as he settled into being more of a leader and key player on this team, he's just taken his game to a different level that we didn't see last year. And one thing I think that's been so good for the Timbers is as they've tweaked their formations, he's been able to adapt to whatever position uh, Savarese's been able to put him in. I mean, we talked about this weekend, him playing a little bit wider, coming in as an inverted wing- winger. He scores two goals and, and adds an assist and, and that immediately moves into that position and doesn't, you know, it, it doesn't make a difference. I mean, maybe he was even better on that sense. But it's the Timbers are not going to do have a playoff run and are not going to be even where they are at this point in the season if it isn't for Sebastian Blanco. Let's move to defense because Liam Ridgewell was out. I think he's the most important player in defense, but clearly there's a level of depth in defense that we had kind of forgotten about a little bit. Maybe not forgotten about, but I don't think many of us still saw Bill Tuiloma as part of the kind of three-man team that had been occupying the central defense spots. So it was a surprise to see him back in the starting 11 ahead of Julio, Julio Cascante this weekend. Julio Cascante did end up playing, but Leris Mabiala next to Bill Tuiloma, how do you think that worked? Yeah, I mean, I think Tuiloma was doing well earlier in the season when we sort of saw him um, just stop earning those opportunities. And I think it's sometimes a little bit mysterious because we're not, we're not seeing everything that's going on in the training field. I think, you know, there's been question about Paredes that sort of fit in the same line of why are these players that we've maybe seen do pretty well early in the year suddenly just seem like they're off the depth chart. And clearly they're not. Clearly, Zavaresi still has them in the mix, even if we're not seeing them in the 18 every week. Um, something happened where, for a while, Zavaresi felt like Cascante had moved ahead of Bill Tuiloma. And then with Ridgewell back in the mix, that puts Tuiloma in a difficult position as the number four center back, where he just isn't going to have the opportunities to come back in. Now, as we've talked about, Cascante has had some shaky performances. And, and so when Ridgewell was going to be out, I, I think it made sense if there was somebody else there that was pushing for playing time to give someone else a shot just because Cascante hasn't been as consistent as the Timbers need in that position and this was going to be a really important game I thought he did well I it would be interesting to see him week in week week out and see how he grows I I mean same with Cascante they've both put in really good shifts uh, and I think also had moments that you know they weren't quite at the 
their best. They're both younger players and, and they're still developing into potential starters. But it's a good sign that the Timbers have this sort of defensive depth that is, if not every week, um, gotten to the point where they're going to be amazing every week. But players are able to come in and put in, put in good shifts. And, I mean, they got the job done on defense again. And that's going to have to be a strength for them if they want to, you know, finish the season strong and make a real playoff run. And there are signs that it could be um, based on some of the performances they put in. It's nice to see the depth becoming a strength again because during those weeks where the team was playing three games in seven or eight days, I didn't feel like the depth really stood up maybe the way that we would have predicted it would have in June and July. I think this weekend was a really good example of how that depth could be used effectively. They talked about it on broadcast this weekend, and if Ross Smith and Jake Ziven are talking about it, they probably talked to Giovanni Savarese about it. Bill Chumaloma's ability to play a long ball is really almost second to none on this team. I think him and David Guzman are the people that you just look and the way they hit a ball with the power, the backspin they have on it, it's incredible. And as we saw on the first goal, sometimes Chumaloma can just hit that ball first time too and put it exactly where it needs to be. And I thought particularly with the way that RSL plays their fullbacks, that made a lot of sense this weekend. And again, this is a point where I just wish I had a more open mind earlier in the week because once I reviewed the game film on Real Salt Lake, I was like, this is going to be a great game for Julio Cascante. The other team is so direct, but they're not really clever about it. So his athleticism and speed is going to be great to vacuum up everything behind the defense. And there were two or three times that RSL went over the defense that I thought maybe Julio Cascante would have managed that a little bit better. But Bill played great. I thought Bill Tuiloma played great. And it was just a reminder that this team, like we've talked about before, maybe it doesn't have the high-end talent that other teams have. But 20 through 25, 30 on the roster, they might be as deep as any team in this league. And it really showed this weekend. Speaking of Davi Guzman, we talked about a little bit before. Is that the Davi Guzman you think we're going to see throughout the rest of the year? Or was that just a high point and we have to consider that in context of the rest of his season yeah I don't know I, I think last year when you looked at him playing along Taurus especially earlier in the year last year that was the God, Davi Guzman that we saw yeah, that was um, fun him spraying yeah. all those balls while Chara was kind of sucking up the space in yeah. front of him I think so it's clearly a point that he can get back to I don't think he was as good towards the end of last season and like you said I, I don't think he's been at his best this year there's a reason why he's been struggling for much of the year to even get on the field uh but yeah if he can play like that and work sort of have that partnership with Chara work as well as it did that's gonna be that's gonna be a real benefit for the Timbers and it is gonna be what enables them to potentially continue using this formation if they think it can be effective any concerns at all about the fact that he's one of four Timbers going out on international break now he's not getting the same kind of recovery time um, we've seen him go in and out of the team. He's been a constant presence with Costa Rica this year. and I'm having trouble remembering a time where he came back from an international trip and one wasn't injured as he was in the spring or two just came back in and just hit the ground running. Yeah, I mean, I think the injury is always something you worry about when a player goes on international duty. I, I think that this is a time of the season that most teams expect to be playing once a week. It's I don't remember thinking back to previous years where the Timbers had only three games in October. It's usually been four. Um, I, I think yeah, they usually have a midweek game in October. At they some usually point, have, or they play during the break. The break. They, they've always had four. This, as far as I can remember, this is the first time I remember only seeing three in October. I think it's not a bad thing since it's not like he's coming back and immediately playing a midweek game to have sort of continue playing those competitive games. But obviously, I I mean, international duty is a strain. And 
yeah, I'm not really sure how it's going to impact him. Assuming he stays healthy, I, I think the competitiveness could be good at this point in the season when you need to make keep that mentality and you don't want to have sort of a letdown. But obviously, at the same time, rest at this point in the season can be crucial for certain players. Does the four two three one make sense if you have to slide in either Lawrence or Loom or Christian Paredes next to Diego Chara? Not necessarily. I mean, I don't think yeah. it makes it as good of sense. I think that obviously Olam it does play that six role, but I don't think it, the partnership works quite as well. And Paredes, I don't think is necessarily a natural um, six. Yeah, I think he's an eight. But yeah. at the same time, this is the debate we've been having for a couple of weeks. Is Tra a six? He's an yeah. eight. Blah blah blah. We get kind of dug into these labels and I think like we're seeing with the formation talk sometimes we get so dug in that we don't kind of realize that these are all like spots in a gray area and not these channels that we have to stick to Um, let's talk about something that you've alluded to a couple of times throughout this podcast already four major absences this weekend Armenteros Powell with a concussion Atanella with a shoulder Ridgewell red card I didn't mention Armenteros it was just a illness he's back he's fully expected to play a week and a half from now how do you reintegrate those players into the team after such a strong performance? Or do you reintegrate those players yeah. into the team? Yeah, I mean, it sounds like uh, Powell, Powell's back in training day. It sounds like he's fine as well. Obviously, Ridgewell was just suspended, so he's back for next week, um, barring any other uh, reason that he wouldn't be. To me, that's the easiest one on um, this list. Ridgewell has to go back into the Yeah. Island. So, and Adonella, I think, is still a little bit of a question mark because he isn't yet training. So, I think Adonella goes back in. Yeah, if, if he's healthy. If he's healthy, he goes back in. That's a goalkeeper switch, and I think Adonella is just better. It's not yes. something that changes up the whole uh, formation and uh, what's like, good. Nothing against Steve Clark, but Jeff yeah. Adonella has been one of the top five or six goalkeepers. Maybe I'm even shortchanging him a little bit, but he's, yeah. he's established himself as a number one. And I think Ridgewell goes back in, like you said. I, I mean, I, I liked Tui Loma's. Uh, performance. I, I thought Cascante showed well when he came back in, but like Tui Loma's another person that could play the six next to Chara in the four two three one. Yeah, I, I mean maybe um, we haven't. <laughs> I'm just inventing. Maybe. Yeah, maybe, I mean like, uh, I can't call you a liar on that one, Richard. Maybe. <laughs> but yeah, I think Ridgewell, as I as I've been saying, I mean when he's playing his best, and especially we know he plays be- his best at home. Um, he's just better. The, yeah, the stats have kind of showed that, right? <laughs> uh, but. Samuel Armateos is the real interesting one. Yeah. Not only Powell for the, too, I think. Yeah, um, there's obviously a position battle between three very capable players at fullback. There's a position battle between two very capable forwards up top. I feel a little bit more secure about the fullbacks than the forwards, but we've been talking about forwards all year. We know what the score is there. One of these guys has to step up, and one guy is kind of stepping up. So it'll be interesting what happens in the next Yeah, I mean, weeks. I expect to see Abobasi, and um, I expect to see Zarek and Viafania in the lineup if I were to take my guess at this point. I think, um, I think part of what's course. interesting is that the four, any 4-1 four win on the road, you got to chalk it up in this league as a bit aberrational. Yeah. And based on how Mike Petke react after the game, we can expect to see a different tactical plan from Real Salt Lake. He felt like he got tactically outfoxed. So I would find it very unlikely that Real Salt Lake is going to come in with the same game plan a week and a half from now. So Giovanni Savarese is now in a position where he's no longer preparing for a team. He's trying to predict a team. Now, how he sees that prediction playing out will influence who he starts, the formation he starts. So again, we're in this place where like, uh, don't really know. All we know is that Giovanni Savarese, I meant to mention this before, I was trying to count how many um, coaches between my time in California and my time working for 442 and stuff, how many coaches I've really covered in an in-depth basis. And 
between the NWSL and everything, I'm not really sure. It's close to 20 or something like that. There is no coach and no staff that I've been around that's been as detailed as Giovanni Savarese's. Now, I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing. It might be obsessive. But every coach plans out their week from game day backwards. And no coach that I've ever been around starts introducing the elements the team needs to have on Saturday or Sunday earlier in the week than Savarese does. Again, that might be a little bit obsessive. That might be micromanaging. But I... I'm always impressed by his level of preparedness. I mean, I can talk to Giovanni Savare, say, hours after his last game, and he already has a really good idea of what he wants to do for the next game. So I don't know if that's the case right now, but whatever RSL throws at him next Sunday, he's at least going to have a good idea of what he wants to do. And it'll be a huge game for the playoff picture, too. How are you feeling at this point? The Timbers didn't clinch, but just getting three road points, it's got to make you feel better about portland's viability for the postseason yeah i I think that the timbers at this point are expected to make playoffs i I think it would be shocking um and it would not only involve the timbers i think having to lose the next two games but having other teams uh just have the best possible performance I, i mean i think the galaxy right now are they'd have to win their next two games I think at that point they would be tied with the Timbers on wins. This is the assumption that the Timbers lose. They just have to make up goal differential. Okay, so, so they have to win and they have to win big, and the t- or the Timbers have to lose. I mean, the Timbers they split have, the season. The Timbers series. will lose. The Timbers would have to lose both their games right. for that to matter. So maybe that goal differential would be made up just by that. Yeah. Galaxy but, have a potent offense too. So I mean, it's still possible, and, and I think Vancouver is still um, in play because they st- are only on thirty-one games. So okay. The fact that they play the Timbers obviously yeah. makes it a little bit more concerning. But again, um, I, I, they would have to keep winning. <laughs> I'm less concerned about the Timbers making the playoffs than the fact that as of right now, yeah. it looks like they're destined for the fifth seed. Yeah. Seattle wins 4-1 to one last night over Houston. They play Houston again. They play San Jose. Uh, I don't. The f- other game, I think, is against Colorado. I'm off the top of my head. That might be wrong. But they don't play a playoff team the rest of the way, yeah. and they're playing well. I'm going to be a little bit surprised if the Sounders don't take fourth place. Well, yeah, and so that's the second point I wanted to make is that the Timbers don't really have control of anything above fifth right now because these other teams, one through three, uh, Dallas, Kansas City, LAFC, and then the Sounders are all in 31 games. Yeah. And so ultimately, the Sounders have, like I keep saying, the easiest schedule of these teams. If they win the next three, it, they're going to be Easy schedule, the and they're playing the best of all those, yeah. those teams, too. I, I'm already preparing myself for that Wednesday or Thursday morning drive up to Seattle yeah. for that play, 5-4 play-in game. It looks like it's almost destined for that. The only things that I'm wondering about is whether Sporting Kansas City will come back to the pack because over the last two games at home, yeah. they've, they've had winnable games against Salt Lake and LA Galaxy, 1-1 games each time. It's possible that Sporting Kansas City ends up in fourth or fifth place. And they always seem to fade for some reason. I was talking myself out of that. <laughs> this year because they had been pretty strong but is that happening again maybe because in that salt lake game in particular they had so many opportunities to put it away i guess against the galaxy they had some bad luck with referee calls through peter vermes's eyes they did but it's happening again and so maybe a good situation is if kansas city ends up five and portland ends up four i i, I mean i even if kansas city ended up four and portland ended up five i think given how seattle's playing that would be uh maybe a better outcome than oh, the timbers having to uh, go to Seattle because the point. Timbers have outplayed Seattle three times this year. There's a Rui Diaz yeah. factor there that has to be considered, but 
the Timbers kind of played Kansas City to a stalemate at Providence Park and then got worked at, Absolutely. at Children's Mercy. But I think, I think it comes down to, at this point in the season, um, form. It just comes down to form. And that's what, why you see – that's why we saw the Timbers win in 2015 because they did not have a great – season until sort of the very end but they won because they were in the best form of any team in playoffs at that point Mm -hmm. so if Kansas City fades and that's what would have to happen for them to drop down to say four or five I'd be more confident seeing the Timbers face them because they're a team that's fading than face a Seattle team that's surging I throughout this year when the Timbers have really wanted to put their best foot forward on the road they've proven to be a tough team their road record isn't great but you think about games in Atlanta Dallas LA Seattle when they have wanted to put their best foot forward or their road schedule allows them to put their best foot forward we all Salt Lake this weekend they played pretty well so I'm not really that worried about the team going on the road and playing poorly like maybe it'll just be a stalemate where a coin flip has to happen but I'm less concerned about like four versus five like you said finishing four finishing five than just going against the team that'll make it most likely that you'll make it to the next round yeah let's go to some listener questions tom asks the question that a lot of people are probably thinking of is geo done tinkering i think we sort of hit on that it's hard to tell i i don't think so because we we just have seen that's sort of the coach geo is and like you said I, i mean i sort of would um, my initial reaction is to say, go with a similar lineup, go with a similar formation against Salt Lake. But as you mentioned, I mean, we all heard Pecky's comments after the game. Salt Lake's going to have a different tactical approach for this game. So does that mean that Geo has to tinker to sort of adjust to knowing that Salt Lake's going to be different? I think he is going to continue being a coach that tries to read the opponent and, and tries to make decisions based on that. I think he will see, but I think he needs to be a little bit more conservative in the decisions he makes when it comes to tinkering, not test things out anymore, but sort of decide what's worked and what can work for this game. Hey, remember last week when I said they were out of time to go back to a 4-2-3-1? That was, that was amazing analysis. I, I, for Tom's question, I think a lot of it comes down to whether you think tinkering is good or bad, because based on everything we heard about Giovanni Savarese's time at New York Cosmos, no, I mean, like he's never going to be done tinkering. He probably doesn't look at it as tinkering. And everything that Savarese has said about the type of squad that he wants to have, he wants to be able to reward players. He wants everybody to feel like they're important. You can't go to just a set formation with the set players that Caleb Porter did and have that type of environment. So I don't think he's done tinkering. I don't even, I don't even know if, given the culture that he's cultivated, that tinkering is a bad thing. Now, Red Medicine PDX ask kind of a version of this question or at least an implication of the tinkering question why does geo take so long to make changes to the lineup when those changes are obvious to everyone else examples ridgewell diron espria yeah i mean i think that with ridgewell there was a lot of questions outside of just form just whether he was bought in and i think there's some things we can't just answer um, based on how we know how ridgewell can play when he's at his best i i think there's a these decisions do come down to a lot more than just what we're thinking from the outside looking in there's it has to do with how they're doing in practice it has to do i think with the espria case uh as he sort of talked about it it has to do with how jay jeremy bobasi was doing at the t2 level because if he wasn't doing the things that sovereign he wanted to see at that level why was he going to get the chance to play at the first team level and was maybe a road game against a tough team the best time to try to integrate a young player into the game so I I think there's that's a good point that I always forget about like there were just times where it didn't make sense to have a Bobasi go into that particular game and then 
what was it the which game was it that he came into the eleven? Was it the Toronto game at home or it was a oh, Col- Colorado, Colorado, game Colorado. and that was just kind of a perfect opportunity. Yeah, I, I think hopefully this will come out during the week through, through you and me. But today in Beaverton, Giovanni Savarese went into detail on Jeremy Obobese that he hadn't gone into before. Again, because of those two people that wouldn't stop asking him questions <laughs> about it. But I even asked him the question, in hindsight, did he feel like maybe he was too late in bringing Obobese into the starting 11? I think based on questions that you have asked before regarding Jeremy Obobese and Foster Langsdorf and what we learn today, I think it's pretty safe to say that in these situations, Giovanni Savarese is always going to err on the side of not burning the young player. If he has to decide between being conservative as how they're being integrated or throwing them out there too early, he's going to be conservative. And maybe in hindsight, he was too conservative with Obobese, but also as frustrating as it was to see Dairon Espria in the eyes of a lot of people, including myself, miscast as a nine, he's played less than 600 minutes this year. So it was really frustrating, but he has kind of been a bit part player this year. Yeah, and I, I think Savarese admitted that you know maybe he waited too long on Obobese, but it, it goes down to the points that you were making that he didn't want to. He wanted to find the right situation to integrate a player where he thought that player was ready, and also he felt the game was the right situation to give him that opportunity so that he can get confidence from the performance and not to be thrown um, sink or swim, thrown out there to to do something in a tough game where it was not going to give him an opportunity to bring out the best. TJ Zero asks, what does the move back to the 4-2-3-1, if it sticks, mean for Christian Paredes getting back on the field? And I'll let you answer this. The one thing that I wanted to bring up, because you did mention Paredes before, is that he got a lot of his playing time at the beginning of the year, but also at a time when Andy Polo and David Guzman were in Russia for the World Cup. So just like in central defense, where Liam Ridgewell has been reintegrated in the team and maybe pushed Bill Tuiloma and Julio Cascante down, Christian Paredes has been knocked down the depth chart by two veteran players polo veteran-esque player uh, being reintegrated onto the depth chart i think that if they stick with the 4-2-3-1 that if guzman is playing well if he does what he did at salt lake he's is the perfect player to have in that position given what the options the timbers have and, and so yeah i don't think that gives pred as a sort of uh spot to be reintegrated at this point in the season i think that Obviously, it's been a little strange to see him just fall off the depth chart, but I think it has to do with Savaresi feeling like other players are beating him out um, for whatever reason in, in training. And if Guzman's playing well, I, I mean, I, I think it makes sense that, that he is beating him out. And it's not surprising to see someone that, with that veteran experience that's on the Costa Rica national team being able to move into that role and claim that starting spot. But, I mean, if Guzman... If, if that performance in Salt Lake turns out to be an anomaly, I, I think the question is whether they reintegrate Paredes, but whether even the four three two one can really work if Guzman's not going to be the one um, playing the six there. Let me ask you this, because it's not like we haven't seen Christian Paredes at all. I can't remember which game he started, but he started one of the Houston-Minnesota yeah. games. I think he started in New England, too. He's got an occasional start here yeah, and there. Yeah, around the compacted schedule, he got yeah. some spots. Did he do anything during that time that makes you think that he should be getting time over David Guzman right now? I don't think he did anything that was either glaringly bad, but some of these performances overall were bad. And maybe there are like, maybe if you're closely watching him and watching the game back to only pay attention to him, there are things that Savarese might be seeing that is not as immediately obvious. I don't think he did anything amazingly good. Yeah, that's how I feel too. It's just kind of like a five or six out of 10 decent performance. You know what you're going to get. 
also not something that jumps out at you and says, oh my God, this guy has to play more. Yeah, and that's why I think it comes down to what level Guzman's going to be playing at yeah. to, to some degree because, yeah, it, it clearly jumped out to us, uh, Guzman's performance this weekend, but was, is yeah. he, he going to have that performance next weekend? Yeah, that's something we'll have to ask going forward. Speaking of asking, our final question before going to the hot take interlude comes from Patrick. It's a serious question. Why is soccer so poor when it comes to head injuries? You saw it at the World Cup and again with Alvis Powell the other week. Powell clearly was injured after a head injury and the ref was forcing him off the field when he couldn't stand up. Isn't the entire point of injury time for the situation? Yeah, I think it's a good question. It's not. I don't, I don't think it's an easy one to answer, but I, I think you see Taylor Twelman um, you know, he's been a major, um, he, this has been, been an issue that he, he's obviously close to home for him and something he's paid attention to. And you see him tweeting out all the time when, when you had injuries, aren't treated like they should be on the field. It took a really long time for football, even to be at the point they are at the NFL to be at the point that they are at with head injuries. And you can say that that's not perfect anymore. And it yeah. was sort of forced upon them i'd call it really. passive denial now yeah. instead of active denial <laughs> i mean it was forced upon them by what? just all the research and <laughs> lawsuits and just forced upon them by morality <laughs> was it though You're was right. morality yeah, what no, forced them financial to, morality maybe um i don't necessarily want to compare all of soccer to the nfl but i, I think that any changes to the game are hard for people to adapt to and mm. um the idea of head injuries is still sort of relatively new. And we saw in the NFL, even though it was very clear what was going on, how difficult it was to even get to a sort of level where the league was recognizing Mm -hmm. um, that. I I think that there just has to be across leagues. And and I think soccer is definitely one. There just has to be more that's done and and more of a commitment to paying attention to head injuries. And and that hopefully will come over time. But yeah, I don't think it's good enough yet. I don't think it's been good enough in MLS in certain cases. It wasn't good enough in the world cup. And ultimately, yeah, you're risking, uh, you're risking a player's long-term health when you don't pay close attention to head injuries and and take them very seriously. Maybe I'll make this a topic of a hot take interlude in the future, but I have a lot of thoughts on this, and unfortunately, it kind of derails us. So I'll just put a bookmark in this and say that I definitely share your concerns as well as the implied concerns of Patrick. It's a serious issue that is not being taken seriously enough. Now let's go ahead and get to our hot takes for this week, the Chris Reifer Memorial Hot Take Interlude. I'm going to go ahead and go first because you always have to go first, and I always (laughs) feel bad about doing the intro and just throwing it to you. Uh, mine isn't very much of a hot take. I just want to bring people's attention to what's going on at the bluff right now. So over the last couple of years, we've seen kind of a waxing and waning between the two programs. A men's program that hasn't had a ton of significance since Clive Charles was coach has had a resurgence and was a recent West Coast Conference champion is now getting some great talent in and it looks like it's going to be a consistent West Coast Conference competitor which is something that the women's team once was, except for the last three or four years, the last years of Garrett Smith's time there, they sunk toward the bottom of the West Coast Conference and really started to lose some of the prestige that they had accumulated, starting with Clive Childs and the championship won by Garrett Smith. Now, there are two teams that are very good right now. Two wins this weekend for the University of Portland women. The University of Portland men are doing well. Both have amazing goal scorers on their team between Benji Michelle for the men and Taryn Reese for the women. I just want to bring people's attention to the fact, especially now that one of the PTFC teams is no longer in season, a couple more are approaching their playoff time and going to be phasing out, that 
there is good soccer again up on the bluff. So it's not really a hot take, or maybe it is a hot take to say that women's soccer at Portland is back because they're not through their league season yet. They lost by three goals at BYU a couple years ago. But I want to at least give some acknowledgement to the job that Michelle French is doing, the job they're doing at both sides up there because there are two relevant soccer teams at the University of Portland right now. So you're saying that's what everyone should do during the offseason, once we get to the offseason if they're still playing. Yeah, get, get your galoshes on. Go ahead and break out an umbrella. Don't feel <laughs> don't feel shamed into not taking an umbrella up there. Um, spend go and get to a season pass so for some cheap tickets and get involved in pilot soccer now because uh, after some years of really disheartening results on the women's side and the city obviously takes a lot of pride in the University of Portland women's soccer program. The team is back. It's got some young players. Taryn Reese that I mentioned, she's up to 13 goals after her second hat trick of the year. She's only a sophomore there are going to be some good players developed over the next two or three years. So be an early readopter and get up there now before the city starts screaming about UP pilot soccer again, because it's going to happen over the next couple of years. Jamie, please have a hotter take than me because <laughs> mine was just more fanboying over a local college. Yeah. So I wanted to get back to the, uh, our discussion earlier with red cards and video review, um, and VAR. Um, I think we, I think there's a lot of, discussion i saw a few people ask me on twitter if there was any um response from the referee after the salt lake game i didn't see anything there is a pool reporter assigned to every game that is supposed to ask referee questions after Ooh. controversial calls i didn't see anything i wonder if rsl out. doesn't have a pool reporter now because maddie lee recently went to cover sec football three months ago so yeah i don't know the exact situation rsl but it is the home team that somebody that covers the home team um is the one that's going to be the pool reporter of that game so it would have been someone at the rsl side i didn't see any questions come out of that game um, or answers from the referee, which was disappointing. But I I think there's a larger point here I I wanted to talk about, which is that from my understanding, unless there's been a change in in the last month or so, pool reporters were instructed earlier this year to not really ask about conversations between the referee and the VAR booth. Wait, what? Um, Yeah, that's what the, what we were told. By, um, By whom? Who, 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 the, league, the league sent the league this instruction? The league has said that to... <laughs> <laughs> I love the idea of a league telling you what to ask yeah. and not to ask. Um, I guess with the introduction of VAR, the, this is something that's been conveyed to the North American soccer reporters group um, that kind of a lot of soccer reporters are in that, that kind of conveys um, there's liaisons that work with the referees and not to get into all the dynamics, but that's something that's been conveyed to us. And... I think there has to be both the ability to ask those questions and there should be more response from the referees on explaining the conversations that went on between them and VAR because I have not heard any sort of explanation that really involves referees talking about, well, this is what the VAR told me. This is why I decided not to make this decision. It's much more with referees saying rule of the book says X, Y, and Z and leaving it that, at that. Oh. But if we're going to have, if, if VAR is going to be in place and there's going to be questions, especially coming out of a game like Salt Lake with the red cards that we did not happen, uh, and I think fans and media as well are wondering why didn't that happen? I think there needs to be a very in-depth explanation of what exactly went on that led to this not being reviewed, not having the referee go over to the monitor and actually look at the play. And I want to be able to ask those questions and I want referees to answer um, explaining why what VAR said in their ear and why they decided in this circumstance not to to go look a little bit closer at those plays. Um, because I, I think there's, even as overall well, um, I, I think the, the implementation of VAR has been 
a success for the most part. Uh, there's still a lot of plays that are being missed and a lot of questions on why this isn't being reviewed in certain situations. And I, I think fans in the media and anyone following the league deserves more of an explanation. Well said. I uh, personally would love to get people like you be able to pursue these stories as they want. Even if for me personally, I'm not like so into talking about referees as much as other people. I, it'd be nice if people like you at least had the luxury of pursuing this as the story dictated. Uh, but you mentioned the North American soccer reporters. I just want to give a shout out to Jonathan Tannenwald, who a lot of people on this podcast probably know from his Twitter presence. He is a frequent tweeter. He is, the, as of the beginning of this year, the new president of the North American Soccer Reporters. I get the feeling he has that organization back on track. He is the best person in this country to get that organization back to being relevant, and I want to wish him the best of luck. But even if he's not listening to the show, I want everybody to know that that group is in going in a different direction than it's been in the last three or four years, and Jonathan Tannenwald is a big reason why, and I think he's doing the media in this country, and by extension, the fan base in this country, a great service by devoting his time to that, because it's not a paid position or yeah. anything. Let's go ahead and transition now. We didn't have very many hot takes during the uh, Chris Reifer Memorial Hot Take interlude. Maybe we can get hot takey about the Thorns because there isn't a lot to talk about here. We're kind of just going to touch the basis here on what's going on with the U.S. women's national team. They have blown out Mexico and Panama in their first two games of CONCACAF World Cup qualifying, the CONCACAF Women's Championship. No surprise there. Let's just go through the games that have been played against Mexico. Horan starts. Heath starts. Let's talk about them first. Lindsay Horan, should Jill Ellis be building around Lindsay Horan's skills or asking Horan to adapt? We saw some quotes leading into the Mexico game about Jill Ellis wanting Lindsay Horan to play a little bit differently and develop skills that she isn't showing with the Thorns. I kind of think Portland Thorns Lindsay Horan is pretty good and a good enough player that you should probably just be using that rather than asking her to be something else. Yeah, I mean... I saw the quotes too, and I, I talked to Ellis. Um, well, I talked to, I asked Ellis some questions for the story I did on Lindsay Horan as well. And, and I mean, what she really said was that she just wants her to, you know, get a little higher up on the field and score more goals. And I, I mean, her production at the national team level isn't what it has been with the Thorns. I, I mean, she plays a little bit maybe deeper in Portland, but. I think the ultimate goal that Ellis has is just getting her a little bit more involved in the attack at the national team level, like she has been able to do with the Thorns. Maybe with the Thorns, based on the competition, based on the setup, she is kind of relied upon to cover a little bit more ground. So maybe starting at a higher point on the field with the national team makes some sense. I, I think that Lindsay Horan has done well for the national team. But I, I think she's capable of being a much more dangerous goal-scoring threat and someone who's providing assists more consistently at that level. And if that means, in Ellis's case, that she wants to see her play a little bit higher up in the field, be more of a 10 than a 8, it doesn't bother me too much. Um, I, I think she still sees her. I mean, she describes her as a box-to-box midfielder. I still think she sees her as someone that's going to cover a lot of ground and play an important defensive role as well. Um, but it's just about finding a way for her to score more goals at that level because, you know, yeah, she hasn't scored a ton of goals at that level yet. No, she hasn't. Her goal rate is noticeably a lot lower than you would expect, particularly given the fact that she spent a lot of time playing forward for the national team before the recent adjustment. Yeah, I really like your answer because I have really dug myself in on the fact that Lindsay Horan can be a 10, but it's not her best position. So if you're asking her to be a 10, then you're probably asking for a diminished version of Lindsay Horan, something that's still going to be good. But your answer probably makes a little bit more sense. Maybe sometimes Jill Ellis says 10, but she's really just imagining 
the highest midfielder in a three midfield formation. It's really an eight. I, I want to see how that plays out now after listening to you because I'm very against the idea of Lindsey Horan being this player that with her back to the f- defense, drops back, has to be the person that is receiving the ball from midfield and defense, taking her out of her best roles, or maybe when she receives that ball, having to use her quickness to get around potentially one or two defensive midfielders. That's not the Lindsey Horan that I know. I don't think that's her best position. I think we're seeing if she has the ability to reel the field in front of her. When play is building wider through the middle, she can find those spaces and be so effective. I think that's the kind of Lindsey Horan that the national team should be trying to get. Let's talk about Tobin Heath. We all know Tobin Heath right now, one of the best players in the world. Maybe some people were a little bit surprised to see that she is starting over Mallory Pugh because Mallory Pugh has been, when healthy, a consistent starter for the national team. But I guess this is pretty non-controversial. Tobin Heath, Megan Rapino as your wings. Yeah, that's what you do. Yes. I, I mean, I don't have much more to add. I, yeah, I think, I mean, Heath wasn't healthy for a long time. And Pugh's good and she's going to be good for a long time and she's going to be a starter a consistent starter for this national team at some point I I mean I I think that's likely to be what we see in her progression over time but if Tobin Heath is Tobin Heath that's healthy and playing the way she's playing she's a starter period I don't think it's any insult to Valerie Pugh who's a decade younger than Tobin Heath to say hey you're not quite a Tobin Heath level her national team someday she's a really good substitute right now and that's not bad considering the talent level at her position with the national team final thorns player that's in this camp part of this 20 person squad is emily sonnet who got the start at right back against panama jamie my general opinion on games versus panama is that they actually end up being more disinformation than information the level of play for panama we're talking about a team that might finish at the bottom of the pack 12 let alone the nwsl so the broader question i want to ask you is sonnet is not a starter right now it seems like which is fine. A year ago, she wasn't even part of this team. Do you think she has a realistic chance of claiming a starting spot before next summer in France? I, I think it's possible. I mean, she's clearly in like that second group. If you look at her starting at Panama, I mean, it sort of went Mexico was a star- starting group, and then they sort of put in their backups uh, yes. for the second game. Um, I, I mean, she's right there. She has a chance to still push to earn a starting spot. I, I think she's going to have to keep progressing. I don't think this is an easy um, position for her necessarily to win. But if she keeps progressing, if she keeps t- taking steps forward, it's a long way uh, before the World Cup next year. I, I think, yeah, it's still within reach for her. Let's go to some listener questions. We are in the second hour of the show right now, so we'll probably wrap this up in the next 10 minutes. But we did want to get to these questions. Sam asks, it's the NWSL offseason, but I would like to know who should be added to the roster to bolster the squad. Is Sophie Schmidt possibly in addition? Sophie Schmidt. I don't want to make her (laughs) Ziggy Schmidt's daughter. But Sophie Schmidt, ever since her first years in the league with Sky Blue, has been playing in Germany, Canadian International, UP alum, obviously somebody that a lot of people in the city would like to uh, have back but let's just talk about this more generally who should be added to the roster or probably better put where do you think they should be targeting additions yeah I, I still I think I've touched on this I still think that um, sort of a defensive midfielder a player that can do a better job of replacing what Amandine Henri did for this team is a position that they need to target I'm still interested to see where Andresini ends up because I am going to be surprised if she comes back but maybe with the World Cup I, I mean I think that sort of changes everything a little bit when you're looking at roster knowing that you're going to lose oh I mean I don't know why I said that she would be going to the World Cup so again not sure (laughs) about her future with the team but I still think the defensive midfield position is a place they need to look at and I I just think a lot of the other questions are going to be around the World Cup and and maybe specifically whether they need to add another forward um, or another key attacking player that's going to be here all season 
Yeah, I think that defensive midfield is just such this interesting question because you want to give Celeste Bure the room to have internal development, but you also have to be realistic that there are only certain places in the team where you're going to make up the gap between you and North Carolina. And if the history of this league tells you anything, it's not only that you need to make up the gap, you need to surge beyond where the best team is now because next year, you're probably going to have to be the best team in NWSL history to be the best team in 2019. So it leads to a series of really tough questions because I don't look at the thorns and think that they have any absolute weaknesses but compared to the rest of the league you have to look at things as relative weaknesses and I do think there are two or three places where some tough questions need to be had and those tough questions take on a whole new dimension when you're still trying to develop some young talent let's go to Mike's question Ooh, this is kind of fun which non-cap current Thorns player is most likely to be capped in the next 12 months I, I want to hear your thoughts on this but to me it really comes down to two players yeah um yeah I, I I mean I I want to say French. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say French. I'll let you say the other. But uh, it's still, I, I keep holding out hope that she's yeah. going to get a cap. Um, and I think she deserves it. And I think she's in that national team mix to the point now that when the rosters are big enough, she's going to get called in. And it would make a lot of sense to give her that opportunity to get that cap and see where she's at. But yeah, uh, that's a hopeful but, answer. But history. <laughs> history, right? yeah. I have consistently been too optimistic about 80 franchise chances of being integrated into the team. So I'm not, I'm going to learn my lesson and say it's unlikely. I will say this January presents a very unique situation for Jill Ellis because she has to decide which players are going to get the full national team contracts for the year. I want to believe part of the reason AD French wasn't chosen for the CONCACAF Women's Championship was because she's not one of the two goalkeepers that has that permanent deal at this point. And maybe if she got the contract that currently is in Ashlyn Harris's hands next year, that she would all of a sudden be number two on the depth chart. And Gillis doesn't want to shake things up until she has that window to do that. I have zero reason to believe that. <laughs> Nobody has told me that. Nobody has even hinted at that. People have hinted that it's actually the opposite, that Jill Ellis just legitimately believes that Ashlyn Harris is the better number two for the team right now. Not even talking about number one. AD France should be number one, let alone number two. So the other thorn that I think, if she doesn't get a cap before the World Cup, I definitely think we'll get a cap after the World Cup, where they always have this transition period where they're trying to get new players in, is Mitch Purse. Mitch Purse twice has been called into national team camp since leaving Harvard, twice has not been capped this last time because of an ankle injury, suffered, I think, the first day of full training. I think it's very likely that she will not only get called in, but get a cap. What that says about her national team future, I'm not sure, because we always see players get random caps in the years after World Cups, but I think that she's the other person that's on the radar. Debbie asks, with Iceland and Denmark presumably out of next year's World Cup, that is the case now, Denmark was eliminated today from European qualifying, do you see Nadia Nadim or Dagny Brynjardsdorter coming back to Portland? I think it's possible given that, like, like I said, I, I think they might be in a position where they need to bring in another attacker um, that's going to be able to be here for the full season. And both those players obviously have a history here. I, I don't know where those players are necessarily looking to play at this point. I don't know what uh, you know, salary cap implications, other things going on. I, I think there's a lot of questions, but I think it's a, definitely something that the Thorns would explore. Yeah, I think they would love to have both of them back, yeah. but I think they'd love to have Amandine Henri back too, and, exactly. uh, amongst other players. Nadia Nadim, I find very unlikely. I know there was a lot of talk this summer when she was here, and then she gave a transfer request to Manchester City about the possibility of her coming back. To my knowledge, she was angling for a move to another European club and not trying to get back to Portland. I think that's 
at least now where you have to say it's more likely she would move if she moves teams. But Dagny Brynjard's daughter, I, yeah, I, I think that's something that everybody should, I don't want to say should, but I see no reason to tell somebody not to think about Dagny Brynjard's daughter because she's obviously well-liked at this club. I think she would fit uh, where the, their direction team wants to go in. It's just a matter, you know, everybody knows she's had a child since she's been away. And at this point, family concerns are probably the number one thing in her life. And I have never talked to her about, hey, what's life like as a mother? So I don't know where her head's <laughs> at on that. So I think it'd be really cool if she came back because she'd be coming back presumably with a family in tow. It'd be a, an interesting story, but we'll just have to wait and see how that happens. Jamie, fantasy update. Yeah, no, no predictions this week. No well, predictions. We'll do them next week. This, leading into RSL. Do you want to give T two predictions? No. No. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're not at that point yet. Maybe sometime. In the so, for people who don't know, they play at six o'clock on Saturday. I believe they're a, they go on the road to Phoenix, which is one of the top teams in the Western Conference. They lost at home this year to Phoenix in a kind of demoralizing game where the T two controlled most of the action, but ended up giving up a number of goals against the run of play in a way that you may you just go, wow, Phoenix is a veteran team that knows how to do these things. So it's going to be a tough game and it could actually be a prelude to their quarterfinal too, but we won't make a prediction based on that. Instead, let's get to fantasy. Yeah. Uh, so in third place, my favorite team is still in third. Uh, Pork, for them to move pork up. Chop they're, United. They're <laughs> that would be a pretty great name to it. Pretty, pretty excited for that. But no, Jamie B. Goldberg FC, third place with 1,088 points. JB, JBGFC. Jamie GFC. Yeah, Jamie B. Goldberg. But yeah, Jamie GFC works too. Jamie GFC was good. <laughs> Especially if you put the GFC together, like Jamie GFC. <laughs> yeah. Um, Armenteros in second with 1,099. Wait, is that Armenteros? Armenteros, yeah. Okay. Yes, I may have. I may have just you, said. You just said his regular say name. <laughs> you just said his, like Sam, like Sam. Like Sam has a team at this no. league, and he's in second place. No, this now. is a much more creative name. Uh, and Bloodbath and Beyond in first place with one thousand one hundred and eleven points. And that is all for us uh, this week. We will be back next week to predict uh, the Timbers' uh, rematch with Salt Lake here at Providence Park. Um, but you can find us every week on Stumptown Footy. OregonLive.com and Timbers.com. You can also subscribe on iTunes and Stitcher. And until next week, take care. <laughs>